0: Then, in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, Drum and every kind of music fall down and worship the statue I made but if you don't worship it you will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire and who is the God who can rescue you from my power Shadrach Meshach and Abednego replied to the king Nebuchadnezzar we don't need to give you an answer to this question if the God we serve exists then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you to we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden statue you set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage, and the expression on his face changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He gave orders to heat the furnace seven times more than was customary, and he commanded some of the best soldiers in his army to, sh- t- to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. So these men in their trousers, robes, head coverings, and other clothes were tied up and thrown into the furnace of blazing fire." Since the king's command was so urgent and the furnace extremely hot, the raging flames killed those men who carried Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego up. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the furnace of blazing fire. Then King Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in alarm. He said to his advisers, didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? Yes, of course, your majesty, they replied to the king. He exclaimed, look, I see four men not tied walking around in the fire unharmed and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace of blazing fire and called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you servants of the most high God, come out. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. When the satraps, prefects, governors and the king's advisers gathered around, they saw that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men. Not a hair of their heads was singed. their robes were unaffected, and there was no smell of fire on them. Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, "Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. He sent his angel and rescued his servants who trusted in him. They violated the king's command and risked their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. Therefore, I issue a decree that anyone of any people, nation, or language who says anything offensive against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be torn limb from limb and his house made a garbage dump. For there is no other God who is able to deliver like this. Then the king rewarded Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Peace be with you, sojourn. It's great to see so many familiar faces here. I just wanna start by saying if I haven't had the privilege of meeting you, I know there's a lot of new faces. Do me a favor, if you come up, just give me your name. Even if I have, it's been three years. So come up, say, hey, this is my name, but I got most of you. Um, So uh, I want to also say uh, that we're studying the book of Daniel right now. And so to give you a little context for those of you who are joining maybe for the first time today, uh, Daniel is a story or is a book of the Bible that takes place in the ancient kingdom of Babylon. And the main question in the book is how do you live a faithful life in Babylon? How do you live a faithful life to God in Babylon, in exile? Um, This ancient kingdom uh, was located around present-day Iraq, and it was beautiful. It was one of the most amazing um, global empires that has ever existed. The Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And this is kind of the splendor and the glory of this kingdom. But Babylon is not just a physical place 2,500 years ago. Babylon in the Bible is a spiritual metaphor as well because it all started with the Tower of Babel. If you're familiar with the story of the Bible, early, early on, one of the first stories, a dark story is the Tower of Babel and that word is exactly the same, there's no difference, Babylon, Babel, it's the same place. And so that memory, that haunting memory, continues throughout the Bible, and now Israel is exiled in Babylon, and in the future, it comes up again, and Rome is described as Babylon, and prophecies in Revelation describe the world, the current world, as Babylon. And so um, it's, a, it's a powerful metaphor, and it has something to speak to us today as well. How are you faithful in Babylon? One more way to get at that is to consider what would have been the bumper sticker in Babylon. What would have the bumper sticker of the day been? And actually, we get an answer to that in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah uh, chapter 47 says this two times, describing, indicting the attitude of Babylon. This is it. I am and there is no one else. That's the spirit of Babylon. I am and there is no one else. And I'm guessing in America, that's more and more the spirit of the age here as well. So let's dive into this story, and let's just refresh the details. So Nebuchadnezzar, the emperor, he is a, kind of a wild character, but he sets up a 90-foot golden statue, most likely of himself. Uh, 90 is pretty high. I was doing some Louisville research to see what's comparable. The best thing I could think was that the big four bridge is about 50 feet above the water. So double the platform height, another, well, 40 more feet, and you got a statue that high made of pure gold. It's a little ironic uh, that he built this because in the previous chapter, there was a prophecy and a dream he had that described him just as a golden head, a golden head that would ultimately get replaced by other kingdoms and other empires that would, future, that would come in the future. But now in this story, just the very next story, he says, no, 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 I'm not the head. He builds a whole statue made out of gold. And we don't totally know why. Maybe because he's just an egotistical maniac. Maybe because he's trying to bring political unity to an empire that has different religions and different people groups and different languages. And he's saying, we need unity. And so he builds a statue. This is gonna bring unity. Everybody will bow to me. So um, that's where we are in the story. And these leaders, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, they've just been promoted by Daniel, their friend Daniel, in the previous chapter, at the end of the previous chapter. They've been promoted to these high positions in the government. And now, they're all, all the high leaders in the government are being called in to bow down to the statue. Thanks a lot, Daniel, for the promotion, right? So this is where they are, and they have this decision in front of them. And that's what I want to look at today. I want to just focus in on this climactic scene. How will they respond? And I wanna look at it mainly from the angle of courage. I hope to start a conversation this week about courage. What is it? Where do you get it? How do you live it as a Christian? So we're gonna look at courage and then we're gonna, at the end, we're gonna touch on the kingdom. How does courage serve a kingdom? But let's start with courage, courage under fire. Now, most of us have been lucky enough never to be in this exact scenario where an emperor is calling us in and saying, hey, You know, deny Jesus or get thrown into a fire. Um, But I just wanna point out that this is not so far off from the experience of lots and lots of Christians around the world. In fact, Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount that we just studied that persecution is expected and is normal for a Christian. That's kind of what you sign up for if you become a Christian. The final two Beatitudes, blessed are the persecuted, says Jesus. Well, why would he say that if that's not gonna happen? This is a, a verse from the New Testament that is getting, is so important and is what I experienced last uh, that first year. Let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. I want to encourage you, if you don't have that reality, maybe you had it in the past in college or something you don't have it today, seek that out. Seek that, find at least one or two guys so you can be in a triad like these guys, where you can share deeply, you can encourage other people, and you can borrow their courage when you most need it. Courage grows in community. Number three, now we get to more of the the in-the-text explicit stuff. Courage leaves the results to God. See, Babylon always presents you with a dilemma, and it's a false dilemma. Look at verse six, verse 11, and verse 15 in the text. This is the same line. If you don't worship it, you will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. See the dilemma? You either bow or you burn. You bow or you burn. There's two options, what are you gonna do? Recently we were doing some premarital counseling with a couple. in a foreign language, and one of my teammates was like, how are you gonna do that with all the like cultural cues and the subtleties of language and like figuring out relational dynamics? Like, I don't know, but good news, it's really easy. These guys are golden, these guys are solid, yeah, I love the Lord, it's gonna be so easy. Never say that. <coughs> it was like a week later, I got a phone call from, from the lady and she was like, hey, can we meet tomorrow night? I was like, why tomorrow night? That's not our night. And she's like, no, we need to meet. I was like, okay. So I knew something was going down, and we got together and uh, heard their story, and basically the guy had confessed infidelity six, that had taken place six months prior. And we worked through that, and we talked through that as best as we could and prayed together, but I asked the guy at one point, point, I said, why, why did you wait six months till right before your wedding to confess that? And he said... I was just so scared. He's like, if I had to, either I told her the truth or I lose her. Either, so I had to lie. It's either I lie or I lose her. That's all that was going to happen. And that's why I waited. But he found the courage to confess. And, and I just want to point out that that lie is going on in your heads and my head too. Whenever you have a virtue under pressure, you will face a false dilemma. The voice of the enemy, the, vo- the spirit of Babylon will slip in and say, you have two options and they're both really bad and, you're gonna, and you have to choose. But courage leaves the results to God, right? The two options are <clears throat> you know, either, I've heard this all the time in, sojourn, in counseling situations at Sojourn, either I scream and yell or he's never gonna change. Right? either I have to leave my spouse or leave this person or I'm gonna be miserable and, and unhappy the rest of my life either I have to cheat and I have to fudge things or I'm gonna lose my job or I'm gonna my career is over it's always that and, in, and Pastor Robert taught me a little technique I don't know if he even remembers but we, he would do this with his hands he'd go, he'd go I, you're saying this and this but where's God in that he'd bat the hands away where's, where's God in that because you're only seeing the two things, that are they're both bad, and you flash the hand, and look, look at what happens with these guys in the story, verse 16, but I know that we're in an interesting situation, we have a freedom here that a lot of Christians don't, um, and you know, I would just say that it's not only the apostasy situations, it's not only the intense persecution situations that require courage, and you know that. This is a quote that uh, I appreciated this week from C.S. Lewis, he writes, courage, It's not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point, which means at the point of highest reality. In other words, every virtue that Jesus is calling you to is going to require courage at some point when it comes under pressure. So you're called to forgive and reconcile, and that sounds great until you're hurt and you actually have to do that. And then you're tested and the virtues tested and it requires courage. You're called to stand up for your Christian worldview. And that's so great when you go to Bible college and it sounds so awesome. And then you go to get your job and all your coworkers are mocking it and you're like, oh man, what am I going to do? Courage. It sounds great to be courageous like Job under suffering until you start suffering for a long time and it doesn't go away and you pray and you pray and it doesn't get better and God's calling you to courage, the courage to endure. So how do you do that? I wanna look at five lessons, five principles from the climactic scene here and ask that question, how do we find courage? The first two lessons are more implicit, they're from the background of the text or the context, Um, but let's start there. Number one, courage starts small. Courage starts small. There's a great French proverb that I've learned that I want to share with you here. It is, qui vole un oeuf, vole un boeuf. And what that means is whoever steals an egg steals a cow. In other words, you steal something little, yeah, you're probably gonna end up stealing something big. Because, and really the flip side is true as well, isn't it? You resist, you have to find the courage to not steal the egg. And you'll find the courage to not steal the cow later. And this idea that courage starts small and grows big, you say, well, where's that in the story? Well, remember chapter one. Where did these three guys start with the courage test? It wasn't in front of a blazing furnace. It was in front, they had just graduated the Harvard of Babylon. They had gone through the best training and now they're invited to eat the best meat. This is the Babylonian steakhouse, maybe like a Brazilian steakhouse or something. They're invited to the table to eat the finest luxuries in Babylon and drink the wine with all the other rulers. And Daniel and his friends have to decide, should we really do this or is this like crossing a line? And you can go back and listen to that sermon if you want, but basically they decided to draw a line in the sand and say, no, we're not going to go all the way with this assimilation program. This is where we draw the line. And they ate vegetables instead of eating all that good stuff. That not exactly the same as a statue in a furnace, but that was a test of courage. And it might have been 16 years earlier in their lives, but those actions are setting the stage for the courage that they now need. And that's how it works in our lives too, that everybody here, whether you have a very small test of courage or whether you're facing a huge test in your life right now, there is something to act on today that will affect you in the future. That's number one, courage starts small. Number two, courage grows in community. The book of Daniel is a case study of an accountability group. If you want to think about it like that, four guys, they're together all the time. They go through college together. They, they get raised up in this culture together and they got to figure out how to live. Ecclesiastes 4.12 says it well. It says, by yourself, you're unprotected. With a friend, you can face the worst. Can you round up a third? A three-stranded rope isn't easily snapped. And here we have the picture of that three-stranded rope together, facing the greatest t- tension this rope will ever face. This passes on the leadership of the young nation of Israel to Joshua. And Moses doesn't say, hey, you be true to you. You're going to do it. He doesn't say, hey, you be true to Israel at all costs. This is what Moses says. He says, Joshua, above all, be strong and very courageous to observe carefully the whole instruction my servant Moses commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or the left so that you will have success wherever you go. This book of instruction must not depart from your mouth. You are to meditate on it day and night so that you may carefully observe everything written in it. Courage comes from an outside word from the Lord. And that gives the conviction from the conviction that that brings. Lastly, courage flows from love. Courage flows from love. I think my favorite verse in this story is verse 18. Look at it here. But even if he does not rescue us. Now, at first you might say, well, that sounds like a lack of faith. And when you pray for a blessing, aren't you supposed to pray in faith that you will definitely get it? When you pray for healing or you pray for a supernatural miracle you are entitled to that you got to believe it and here they're saying even if we don't is that a lack of faith no that's a sign of maturity that's a sign of christian maturity because you're saying i value god more above the stuff he could give me and that is exactly the growth chart of christian maturity almost everyone starts in their Christian journey. Almost everybody comes to God or to church for the first time because they want something. Maybe you're a kid and it's, I'm afraid of hell and I'm afraid of Satan. I want God to save me. That's awesome. Maybe you're an adult and you're like, I'm broke and I need money. and I'm about to, I need God to come through for me here. And you turn to God and you want to get something. It's good to turn to God for things. It absolutely is. Amen. He's the heavenly father. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. But if you stay there, you're incredibly vulnerable, because the second that courage tests that, if that's all you wanted, you'll give it. You'll you, you'll give up God to sti- to stick with that. You see what I'm saying? If that's your main value, you'll ditch God to get that. And I've seen so many Christians value the gift. They get tested and then they bail on God and they bail on church because God never got me that job. God never healed this. God never took me out of that suffering. And so they leave. What did you want? What was the gospel to you? Was it that or, or wasn't it that Jesus died to make a way that you could get God? You could have a relationship with the heavenly father, have him be your dad for all eternity. That, that is the mind blowing gift that we're after here. And when you have that, you can sing psalms of praise, like Psalm 63. This is my favorite psalm, and this is the line that's so incredible. The psalmist says, he's talking to God, he says, because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. These three guys had that. God's love was better than their life. They could easily give that up. You'll be like A.B. Simpson, the hymn writer who wrote, once it was the blessing, now it is the Lord. Once it was the feeling, Now it is his word. Once his gift I wanted, now the giver own. Once I sought for healing, now himself alone. When that maturity starts growing in you, you'll have the courage to say, but even if God doesn't. I pray that for you. So courage starts small, it grows in community, it leaves the results to God, it requires biblical conviction, it flows from love. And I wanna end by talking about the fact that courage always serves something greater. Courage has to serve something greater. Whether that's the kingdom of yourself, whether that, and the stuff around you, whether that's the kingdom of a nation state, courage exists to serve something greater. And Babylon was a really cool option. 90 foot golden statue, it was alluring. I mean, there's another ancient one of the world called the, the Colossus of Rhodes. It was the same exact height and it's an ancient, it's one of the top seven things in the whole ancient world. This thing is the same thing, but made out of pure gold. I don't know why it didn't make the list, but it's so attractive. And the kingdom, the, the gardens, of Bab- I mean, that's a kingdom that would be incredibly enticing to just give yourself to. But in this story, we see there's a better kingdom here. There's a second kingdom going on in the background in this story that is so powerful. And every beautiful, enticing kingdom of earth it's twisted. There's some stuff that's twisted about it. No matter how pretty it looks on the outside, it's twisted on the inside. And in this story, what you see is a twisted kingdom, and it gives you a longing, and it paves the way for the better kingdom that's coming with Jesus. So check, just think of a couple quick things. Nebuchadnezzar makes a golden image of himself, but at the end of the day, it's just a statue. God the Father sends the image of himself. And Colossians 1-3 says, Jesus is the image of the almighty God. Hebrews 1-3 says, Jesus is the exact representation of his being. It's not just a statue, it's exactly God. You've seen Jesus, you see me, you've seen God. That'll blow your mind. In Babylon, the people from every tribe, language, tongue, and nation, do you see that language? They're all supposed to come and bow down to the king and say, king live forever, to the image. In God's good kingdom, the image of God, the true image of God, the golden image of Jesus, every tribe, language, tongue, and nation, and that's a mission Sunday for you, everybody is supposed to come and bow down to Jesus Christ. And and then think of the consequences. King Nebuchadnezzar, he stokes a fire seven times hot, and he says, throw, but he says, throw the faithful guys in there. God the Father, when he gives a parable, when Jesus gives the parable of Judgment Day in Matthew 13 42, he says God's going to send out his angels on Judgment Day and he's going to go through his kingdom and he's going to find those who are not faithful and he will throw them, I quote, in the blazing furnace. See how Babylon's like a weird circus mirror? It shows us the kingdom of God but in a twisted way and it evokes that longing for the real kingdom and it gets even better because the end of the story is just so powerful. Nebuchadnezzar lights the fire, the guys tie him up, they throw him in the fire, they die themselves, it's so hot. Nebuchadnezzar marches up to his tall place to kind of look down and see the spectacle, see the show. And what does he see? He exclaimed, look, I see four men, not tied, walking around in the fire unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Who's the fourth person? It's an age-old question Christian commentators have always looked in and seen this is Jesus. This is a pre-incarnate revelation of Jesus coming here. Um, Others have said, no, this is the angel of the Lord. This is the angel of the Lord. And both have really good arguments behind them. I lean towards thinking this is an angel of the Lord. Uh, But at the end of the day, what's a little unclear is who exactly is this angel. What's really clear is who the angel foreshadows right? That everybody agrees on. This is a clear typology. This is a clear symbol of what God does over and over and over in the Old Testament. And the principle is the Emmanuel principle. God comes himself to rescue. He will come himself to rescue. And that is the story that keeps happening until it happens in the greatest way when he sends his son. Now, what's a little crazy too about it. So the angel in the fire can't get burned, right? You realize that angel is a spiritual being. It can move in and out of fire, no problem. But when God sent his image, he took on human flesh. Okay. So, so this is fully God, fully man, human flesh. So that, why? So he could suffer and feel the fire, so the rescue of Jesus Christ from the fire that we all face, and if you know your own sin and you feel the weight of your guilt, there's a fire in front of us on Judgment Day. But Jesus Christ stepped in the blazing furnace and not unharmed, he stepped in and was completely engulfed in flame to rescue us out. That is a, that is a king, that is a kingdom that doesn't just force you to do something, that's a kingdom that loves you and breaks your heart and says, I want to be a part of that kingdom. That's the kingdom that I, that's gonna make my life flow. That's the kingdom that's gonna make this world flow. That's the kingdom we're living for. He's the lion, he's also the lamb. Emil was a Christian leader in North Africa in the city of Carthage in 250 AD. And in 249, the emperor, Roman emperor Decius ascended to the throne. And Decius wanted to reinvigorate the Roman Empire and experience a new renaissance of the glory of Rome. So what did he do? He went back to the traditional pantheon of gods and he said, and we're also redoing emperor worship like the great emperors of old. So he made the first formal decree written down, every Christian leader has to pay homage and bow down to the, to the Caesar, to, to Decius. And Emil was serving in Carthage and he got this order and he went in and he was tested like this and he said, no, I won't. And they started flogging him and torturing him. And what's crazy is he actually gave up and he said, all right, I I recant. I deny Jesus. I'll I'll bow and worship. And he went home and I don't know what he was thinking, guilt, shame, shame. Maybe waves of, like, like Peter, when he denied Jesus, waves of, well, I'm, I'm done. I'm going to hell for sure. I'm, it's over for me. But it's this message that we just talked of, of a king that is also, Nebuchadnezzar would have never forgiven him. You think Nebuchadnezzar would have never forgiven that? We saw he tried to push him in the fire. Jesus forgave Emile, And it was that, I believe, Emil found the courage to go back I don't know how long later he went back and he said, I made a mistake. I'm here. I won't bow. I'm for Jesus. And they took him and they martyred him. And that's the story of Saint Emile. And my hope and prayer is as we reflect on courage, we look to a kingdom that is far more beautiful and a king that is far more glorious, that will forgive us when we mess up and that welcomes us home and says, come back, come back to my kingdom it's always better than Babylon. The night Jesus was betrayed, <clears throat> he took a loaf of bread, and he used a different metaphor than a furnace, but he used the image of bread to say, look, this is symbolic of my body, and this is what's going to happen to me. He said, I'm, my body will be broken for you. And then he took the cup of wine, and he said, this cup, This cup represents a new covenant, a new relationship I'm creating between God and humanity. It's sealed by blood. Every covenant is sealed by blood. So he says, but this blood is my blood and I'm sealing a new covenant with you. Every time you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you're announcing the death of Jesus, the one who went into the furnace for you. We're announcing that until he comes back again. So today, if you are a Christian, come forward. Break off a piece of bread. You can dip it in the juice or the wine. The wine is marked with some twine. Uh, gluten-free communion will be over here. If you're a Christian, though, who is hiding or holding on to something big, some unresolved bitterness, something, and you feel like, I'm not ready to do this, I encourage you, be courageous. Don't be fake. Have some of that modernist courage. To be, be authentic and stay seated. Don't just fake it. If you're not a Christian, same thing. Maybe you're in process, maybe you're skeptical, first time here, whatever. Don't come forward and partake. This is a meal that's for people that are proclaiming Jesus is Lord, Jesus died for me. So be real, be authentic where you're at and just stay seated and reflect. You have a chance now, maybe you're moved and you want that kingdom. Just stay seated and talk to God. Call to God, say, God, save me. I want in, I want in on this kingdom. It's better than Babylon. And God will meet you where you're at as you speak to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a story that is so classic and there's so much to draw from. Lord, thank you for the courage that you inspired in these three men. Your word was rooted in their heart. Your love for them was motivating them beyond even their own life. Father, may we have a love for you that could say like the psalmist, because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. God, give us continue to give us that vision of who you are. Continue to give this community courage for the little battles and for the huge battles in their own life. God, prepare us to be a people that is faithful to you in the midst of Babylon, whatever that looks like. In Jesus' name, amen.